0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's Monday, and we might as well just dive into the crazy pills right away. Uh, so uh, I I put up my newsletter asking, you know, WTF is wrong with with Aaron Rodgers. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, the usual suspects are rallying around saying, no, wo- you know, the wokesters. It's the wokesters who are attacking Aaron Rodgers. Well, apparently that would include Terry Bradshaw. Did you catch Terry Bradshaw? Just dropping from a great height on uh, the Packer quarterback yesterday. Here's here's Bradshaw. I'd give Aaron Rodgers some advice. It would have been nice if he'd have just come to the Naval Academy and learned how to be honest. Yeah. yeah. They're at the Naval Academy. Learn not to lie, because that's what you did, Aaron. You that's lied to everyone. I understand mm-hmm. immunized. What you were doing was taking stuff that would keep you from getting COVID-19. You got COVID-19. Ivermectin is a cattle dewormer. am sorry, folks. That's what it is. We are a divided nation politically. We're a divided nation on the COVID-19, whether or not to take the vaccine. And unfortunately, we've got players that pretty much think only about themselves. And I'm extremely disappointed in the actions of Aaron Rodgers. And then, of course, the timeline of the weekend got dumber when we became embroiled in the battle over big bird so to help me sort all this out former congressman dave jolly good morning dave how are you good what a 48-hour news cycle huh charlie i you know i'm tempted to say this is the dumbest possible timeline but of course it's not the dumbest possible timeline we'll get dumber timelines
1: Here's so, what I would tell you, Charlie. I think Aaron Rodgers is a chump and Big Bird's a patriot. How's that? Let's
0: just lay it out there right now. <laughs> and, and this is and this is where we've come. You know that the that Aaron Rodgers is now the butt of jokes. You know for for doing his you know homeless, crazy, narcissistic, crackpot routine. He's now a, a butt of jokes on uh, Saturday Night Live. Look, you know, look, I'm 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 a Packer fan, and and so this is really hard for me. I mean, they were seven, they were seven and one, they were on track for the playoffs. He was on track for an MVP season. And what, what does he do? He opens his mouth and we find out that, you know, what a selfish, you know, uh, boor deeply immersed in every bizarre conspiracy theory. And, and every moment that he talked, it got worse. And then of course, Senator Ron Johnson puts out a statement going, Hey, you know, good, you know, good for Aaron Rodgers standing up for freedom or some other bullshit. And it's, and you know,
1: yeah but charlie that's that's not what he did and look kudos to terry bradshaw for going to the heart of the issue which is aaron Rodgers lied he yeah, lied to 30. packer nation he lied to the sports community he lied to the the youth and young adults who follow him and idolize mm-hmm. him he lied he's a liar and that's why that's why i say he's a chump look we i i'm very much pro-vaccine our whole family is great i don't truly understand the anti-vaxxers but let's just put everybody on a level playing field for a moment the opportunity for anybody in leadership, including in sports, is to say, look, if you're Aaron Rodgers, I've decided not to take the vaccine for the following reasons. I respect that other people see it differently. And because I've chosen to, I'm now abiding by the NFL protocols for for the unvaxxed. He did none of that. He lied about everything. He covered everything up. He did not abide by the NFL protocols for the unvaxxed, right, including right, mask exactly. wearing. Right, he right. lied to his, his fellow teammates. He lied to the league. And then when he got caught, He did what seems to be the typical Republican thing these days, which is to turn around and and claim victim. And how dare you you call me to account for having lied to you? This was not about fully his opinion on anti-vaxxers, though we can certainly have that discussion as well. This was about an untruthful star in one of the most powerful sports leagues on the planet, and that's why I think he's a chump.
0: At some point, is he going to come back and say, "You know, I'm I'm sorry, I suffered some severe head trauma. It wasn't just my celebrity <laughs> crackpot narcissism." I don't know. I mean, I, I I I'm trying to figure out. You know, was 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 he always nuts? I mean, I I remember he was a smart, talented guy. We lose. We thought he was. So so yeah. what happened? Did he get into this weird bubble of craziness? Uh, I, I think so. I, Look, I my wife and I were you know. talking about it. We know
1: people who have taken a similar journey in today's political culture. And look, some of it is following disinformation. Others is the the cultural clash that like we're engaged in yeah. as a nation, right? And Aaron Rodgers has gone down that road. And you know, it's a shame, I think, for somebody with such star power. But the next question, maybe you were the one who asked this, mm-hmm. is: I think the only remaining question for Aaron Rodgers is, from which state does he run for U.S. Senate? <laughs> because uh, he probably I, I would. <laughs> I, I, I,
0: I think we got that uh, that that lane filled in Wisconsin already. So. Okay, so then we move to Big Bird. Big Bird puts out a tweet yesterday. The Sesame Street character, for those of you who I don't know, says, "I got the COVID nineteen vaccine today!" Exclamation point. My wing is feeling a little sore but it'll give my body an extra protective boost that keeps me and others healthy. Now, Big Bird has been pushing vaccines since the 1970s. This is not a <laughs> new right. thing, right? Now, in, in on Earth 2.0, grownups would go, hey, that's Big Bird. I'm going to move on to something else. I don't need to comment, but we don't live on Earth 2.0. So Ted Cruz, the United States Senator from Texas, puts out a tweet, government propaganda for your five-year-old. And then, <laughs> I, okay. Uh, okay, so look, uh, Ted Cruz is 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 an intelligent man. Has he gotten trapped in some doom loop of trolling that he's so addicted to trolling that he can't help himself, and so he sits there and he goes, "Okay, we've done Doctor Seuss and Mister Potato Head, now we have to go after. Him. I need a Twitter war about a big freaking bird." that's right. I know I, I agree with you. Perhaps <laughs> perhaps uh, that it. I would also say Charlie this
1: is very much the same political leaders that have attacked Sesame Street, maybe Big Bird in the past over over LGBT inclusion, uh, messaging, oh, right. over yeah. environmental messaging. Look, I you know, I, I don't know awesome. about your listeners. I grew up watching Sesame Street and but I also grew up with parents who knew how to balance the information I was receiving and make sure that I was raised in a way that reflected our family values, as well as hopefully community and national values, to suggest that Big Bird did anything wrong by delivering a responsible message about public health, I think says more about Ted Cruz than about Big Bird. And that's
0: saying something about our United States Senate in 2021. It it does say something about this. Now, speaking of the United States Senate in 2021, I'm I'm sorry, we're gonna get to serious stuff. We're gonna talk about the election. I mean, I promise you, we're gonna get to the infrastructure vote. I I, I want you to explain Chris Christie to me a little. I mean, all of that stuff, we'll get to it. But since we're on the US Senate, um, everybody's got to find their own shtick, right? Uh, all the senators are, you know, have to find their their particular way to stay relevant. So Ted Cruz is putting out tweets about Big Bird and Republican Senate candidates in Ohio, Josh Mandel and, and J.D. Vance are in this sort of you know, race to the bottom. Who can possibly put out the, the most deplorable possible tweets? And then, of course, there's Josh Hawley who's decided that he's going all in on manliness, masculinity, <laughs> because, of course, the party that follows Donald Trump is all about manly men, right? And, and he is taking on those non-manly men who apparently spend too much time watching video games and watching porn because, stick with me here, because of liberals. Liberals are making too many young men Spend their days sitting around in their underwear watching porn. You think I'm kidding. Here is here is Josh Hawley, United States Senator from the state of Missouri uh, on uh, Axios HBO. Here it is. What's a man? Well, a man is a father, a man is a husband, a man good. is somebody who takes good. responsibility. Good. Good. As good conservatives, so we've got to call men back to responsibility. We've got to say that spending your time not working, and we have more and more men who are not working, spending your time on video games, spending your time watching porn online while doing nothing is not good for you, your family, or this country. So, a viewer's watching this and they're thinking, <laughs> really? What the liberals are doing are going to push me to watch Pornhub more or play Donkey Kong more? Do you mean that literally? Well, what I mean literally is that I think the liberal attack, the left wing attack on manhood, says to men, "You're part of the problem." It says that your your masculinity is inherently problematic; it's inherently oppressive. Yeah, so that's why men are playing Donkey Kong and hanging out on Pornhub. <laughs> Charlie, I'd I'd say I, I, who's the who's the whiny white uh, snowflake
1: in that conversation? Uh, <laughs> I think it's the senator from Missouri. So I. Uh, look, maybe maybe this will lead to some introspection on his part, and that could be the best
0: yeah. thing that comes of it. I think that's extremely unlikely. Okay, so <laughs> uh, it, it is Monday morning, and uh, it, the big infrastructure vote seems like a long time ago, right? Late on Friday, um, to the surprise of a lot of people, it actually was infrastructure day. They did pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I woke up on Saturday. Seriously, they actually passed this? That actually goes to the president this 1.2 trillion dollar by the way the media can never figure out how much this costs have you figured this out it's I'm, sometimes it's 500 billion sometimes it's a trillion sometimes it's 1.2 trillion <laughs> can, you, can you yeah well so part so part of in. that
1: mm-hmm. i sh- i sure can so part of yeah. it is just the wonkiness of congressional budgeting which is there is always infrastructure spending that has to be deployed. And so one of the the smirks I've had when Trump talked about infrastructure week and as Biden did is, look, of course, there's going to be infrastructure spending. The fact that we're celebrating routine business, you know, kind of defines where we are. But the, the reason you hear different numbers thrown around is I believe about 500 billion of it is new spending. So what would have otherwise been authorized in the normal process is somewhere around the 700 billion dollar level but there's about 500 billion in new spending, which reflects Joe Biden and Democratic priorities. And so that
0: is why they are taking a victory lap this week. No, I mean, it, it is a victory. lap. It was it was a rather impressive legislative accomplishment, um, but but messy and bizarre. I, biggest surprise of that vote. I mean, just objectively speaking, biggest surprise of that, but nobody saw it coming. Uh, 13 republicans in the house voted for the bill in fact it was house gop members who provided the winning margin because six progressives voted against it. i mean i i think the yeah. conventional wisdom was that well you know uh if, if if nancy pelosi loses more than three democrats then probably she's she's toast on this and and the republicans had to hold their you know yes votes down to two or three and no it was 13 and you you've probably picked up on this. There's this cry of rage from the right. I thought this rage against bipartisanship, and you know, folks over at National Review are regarding this as an act of treason, um, and that every one of those thirteen. Uh, Republicans who voted for this need to be primary defeated. Uh, Kevin McCarthy needs to be ousted. I think part of it was this belief that Democrats were on the ropes. Biden's presidency was about to fail. Uh, The elections this week were were horrific. The poll numbers are down. They were one inch away from just destroying everything. And yet somehow um, you had a bipartisan majority. And It is interesting how the right has become so invested in the narrative of failed presidencies that they're just incandescently angry (laughs) that Republicans actually voted for the exact same bill that 19 Republican senators voted for. That's it. And that's the intellectual dishonesty of the critics on the right this
1: morning is that you had more republican u s. Senators than you had House members pass exactly this same bill. And Charlie, I would tell you had the had the House bill had the bill, the hard infrastructure bill, actually been deficit neutral, I was expecting thirty to forty. Uh-huh. Republicans to join. But in fact, this does add about a quarter of a trillion dollars of debt in unpaid for priorities. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I think you would have gotten people possibly like the Liz Cheney's and others who said, look, we do fund infrastructure, but because it was not deficit neutral, there were a lot of Republicans who were able to say, I'm, I'm going to vote no on this. Uh, look, I, the fact that we had a bipartisan win, It's amazing where we are as a country politically. We should all be celebrating this. Instead, the left is saying, no, it really wasn't about those 13 Republicans. And the right is saying, our 13 Republicans are communists and so are all the Democrats. Look, we funded planes, trains, and automobiles with a significant work project that's going to invest in long-term infrastructure in the country. It's a good day to be an American. America's moving forward because of what the House and Senate were able to do. I think one of the lessons learned that that Democrats need to realize. And actually, I guess two, one on the messaging front, you've got to go all in on declaring this victory and owning it for several weeks. And the reason why is because of lesson two, which is you still don't have the votes to pass Build Back Better. right? And, and you are not going to get a single Republican vote for that. So that means not losing three votes in the House, but also bringing Manchin and Cinema along in the Senate. Maybe they can pull this off, but I, the votes are not there today for Build Back Better.
0: No, um, and, and it was it was very interesting. I thought that the members of the squad, actually there were six of them, uh, decided they were going to vote against this as, as as a protest because they don't think they're going to get uh, the the bigger reconciliation package through. But what I think they they you know they wanted to send a message. And what they sent is the message was that their votes weren't needed that they represent a very small minority of the Democratic Party and they were prepared to vote against uh, one of the president's uh, key initiatives just basically because they were they were mad. I mean, I I I, I'm I'm watching all the spin on all of this and trying to justify it, um, the the rage among progressives. And by the way, could I just mention that progressives had a horrible week last week? Uh, The elections were, were 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 ghastly for for them. And that maybe we'll get to that in in just a moment. Now, see I, on this infrastructure bill, I don't know that I would have supported it necessarily. I mean, there's some stuff in there that I think is just is you know is 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 kind of not infrastructure.
1: Well, no, but it is,
0: yes. I mean, there was I was right. going to say yeah. I and mean, there's some stuff yeah. that I think is probably not not really infrastructure, um, a little bit of waste. But that's the case of all compromises. This is the thing about that's compromises. Right. We want as a country to be functional we want to build stuff we have been building roads and airports and and bridges um in you know up, upgrading the the electric grid these are important things to do these are not socialist in any way in any more socialist than the inter, interstate highway system right. was was socialist but it is interesting how how angry uh, you know, folks were about this particular vote. But you're absolutely right. They they have, they have to market this. Um, uh, the Democrats right now are in a world of hurt. Um, and I think this is part of the anger among the Republicans because, you know, they... I'm watching some of the commentary from normally sort of reasonable, um, you know, right-wing outlets like, you know, National Review. There's no difference between what they're saying and, say, Marjorie Taylor Greene, which is there's sure. this rage for destruction that 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 because republicans did not stand firm and cause the failure of this presidency somehow they have you know this is a terrible thing um so it's interesting they're calling for you know the the primary and defeat of these guys on this infrastructure vote but not for the ones that voted to overturn the election um i mean it's interesting yeah what the priorities are. I, i guess that's that's the point here is that this is what compromises are messy they're not all good they're not all bad uh, but this was probably the closest to a straight bipartisan issue of building stuff, which even conservative yeah, Republicans right. are in favor of, right? <laughs> <If
1: they're laughs> no,
0: that's right. And I think what
1: you're speaking to is uh, politics in D.C. is an industry and even the arm's length players that are supposedly – Independent, either in trade associations or in the media, truly are not. They all coordinate with their team. And I think what you're seeing among otherwise rational folks—right? Throw out the Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn insanity stuff. Um, but but the otherwise relatively sober uh, people on these issues, what has what has sunk in with them? And and I know people like this is that the fear of what Democrats could do pol- uh, on policy to them it is, so, is such a dire threat that any level of honesty, dishonesty, or misinformation is justifiable if it puts a stop to the rise of Democrats and their policies. And honestly, that's what they believe in. I mean, you've been through the Never Trump uh, journey, as I have. Yeah. And yeah. along the way, you meet people who say, boy, Charlie, you're exactly right. I wish but- I could say what you you say. But you know, if Democrats take over, they're really going to do all these horrible things. So we need Trump and all of his minions.
0: All right. So let's switch gears here and talk about the elections from last week, Virginia and New Jersey. Huge shock to the system for Democrats, uh, almost losing an unlosable governorship in New Jersey. And then, of course, uh, flipping Virginia with the victory of Glenn Youngkin. And I think a lot of the focus has been on the voting trends, which if they hold would be a disaster for the midterms. But the voting trends, particularly in the suburbs, where it turns out that uh, Democrats had just rented some of those votes, the rural vote um, is just uh, kind of become a Democratic nightmare. They thought they'd hit bottom, uh, and now they are looking into the abyss, to quote the, the New York Times. So give me your take, David Jolly, on how the Democrats managed to blow Virginia and almost blow New Jersey. What's going on?
1: Yeah. So I think two takeaways, perhaps, that are not just repeating all the other takeaways of the political world in the last week. The first is Republicans can be very competitive when Donald Trump is not on the ballot. Mm -hmm. Right. When Donald Trump is in the mix, when he's either on the ballot or he's playing in the Georgia recount, he reminds those persuadable voters that we weren't sure were ever persuadable again. He reminds those persuadable voters, I don't want anything to do with today's Republican Party under Donald Trump. Well, what we saw in 21 was a distancing of the candidates from Trump, at least extracting as much value from Trump, but then pushing all the other elements away. And we realized that there are persuadable voters, whether they're the suburban voters or rural, whomever they might be, that are saying, look, I'm willing to give Republicans a chance if they're not running with Donald Trump. I, I do think that's a takeaway for Republicans to reflect on. Right? Are they going to repeat the failure points of the last election? But it's also a warning to Democrats on what becomes my second takeaway, which is you have got to meet voters where they are in the moment, not where you want them to be a year from now. And what I mean by that, it is, it is clear that Enough voters, a statistically significant range of voters, were more interested in inflation and school policies and and COVID protocols, bouncing you know left and right. That that they voted on those issues. And while Democrats may have been talking about issues that were polling at seventy five percent, community colleges, paid leave, uh, pre K, those simply weren't the issues for the moment. Those were the issues for down the road. And what surprises me, and this is a, this goes to a bit of the, the industry of politics, Charlie, Democrats had the same polling visibility that Republicans did. Democrats knew this and they just chose not to chase those issues. Hmm. They chose to convince voters Hmm, to to look forward, but they know. So one of the things when you do, when you poll, it's not just a horse race poll. You actually ask probably the most important field of questions when you go into the field to poll is. What's the most important issue to you today? And the example I give is when I ran for for Congress in Pinellas County, Florida, it has the highest density of boaters, I believe, at least at one point it did, of any congressional district. Fisheries is a real part of our economy of tourism. And so I made sure that on fisheries issues, which can be very complex, I was at 90-10 fave on fave, right? I wanted the community to know that their congressman was right on fisheries issues, so I was ninety ten, But if you were to poll people and said, what are you voting on? You know, what's most important to you when you vote? Fisheries was number 10. What they were voting mm-hmm. on was taxes, the economy, immigration, and the Affordable Care Act. And so if I wasn't talking about taxes, immigration, education, and the Affordable Care Act, I was losing. Democrats saw that, saw those numbers going into last Tuesday, that people were worried about inflation and schools and COVID policy, but they didn't address it. And I think that's why they had to fall off from the Biden performance in Virginia and New Jersey of a year ago.
0: I, I, I think you're dead on. And also, I'm, I'm watching some of the reaction to the re- result. And there's almost a willful not willingness to uh, address the point you're, you're making. There's there's been just too much knee jerk uh, reaction that this is all about white supremacy or white racism. And and look, that that that's a fact. I know I'm not in denial about that. But um, I was watching that CNN uh, interview with some of the parents uh, from Virginia and they weren't, they, they weren't talking about uh, critical race theory. They were talking about how frustrated they were with the schools being closed. They were, they were talking about how frustrated they were that, uh, that Terry McAuliffe was embracing, was in the embrace of you know, the teachers union bosses who they thought had, had not been responsive to you know, the needs of, the, of their children. And I think that's, that's a dangerous thing when yeah. voters think you're not listening to them, you're not paying attention to them, and then you demonize them. If there's any disagreement, can I just read you a, a letter to the editor that I got? I, I posted it in my uh, my newsletter yesterday, and it's from a guy who is a Bulwark reader, but he's very frustrated about the election. and And, and tell me whether you agree with this, okay? About you know his he, he's a former Republican who's trying to make common cause here, and he's and he's frustrated. He said the problem with Democrats is they really don't get that the other side has a different perspective. (laughs) They're out of touch. First, even though critical race theory is not taught in school, the kids are taught about white privilege. The kids are taught that because they are white, they have an advantage. There's an endless drumbeat of people getting canceled or fired for innocuous mistakes. A lot of white people feel threatened by this. They feel vulnerable. Conservative media feeds off this stuff. It leads to distrust of academic institutions. I don't hear Democrats say, quote, America is the land of opportunity where you will rise or fall based on your intelligence, character and diligence. So, okay, it's not it's true. It's not critical race theory that's being taught, but something's going on there. And there is anxiety that Democrats are uh, feeding rather than addressing. Um, And then he, he mentions along this line, there's a story you may have missed. The Art Institute of Chicago fired all of its docents because they are white and middle class women. The Art Institute board, which is filled with rich white people, just ruined 100 people's lives, all to appear politically correct. The Art Institute's management is almost entirely white, upper class liberals. This type of crass and cruel behavior tells people who are white they are not welcome in America anymore. This may not be a rational fear, but it is real. No wonder the blue collar workers are leaving the Democratic Party. Now, see What I just said, is this is a discussion, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't think we're ever going to hear on MSNBC.
1: No, you're right. here Here's what I would share with you. We are in the the throes of a uh, cultural conversation on race. We've had several inflection points in recent years. The George Floyd moment being one uh, that that brought to light a lot of the the anger, the division, and the injustice, the the raw injustice towards people of color. And so I I would say this conversation is not easy. We've got outliers who are are hurtful to it, not helpful to it. As a nation, I think it leads us towards incremental progress in the right direction towards racial justice. That's the cultural conversation. On the schools, and and this is where I was sharing with some Democratic friends, I, I don't know if they could make this pivot The issue, sure, is about race, but let's make it agnostic on race for a moment and make it about our education system. And the question is, should our schools be teaching our students what to think? Or should they simply be providing as much information as possible and then working with them on how to think? And what I mean by that is you can take elements—and look, I'm not a PhD in these issues, so I apologize to critics for screwing up what I'm about to Mm -hmm. say— The notion of critical race theory, to me, is an honest retelling of American history as to how race played a role from our founding to our building of our economy that benefited largely uh, the white community through the resistance to civil rights movements. There is a dark narrative of race throughout our history. And it is important that that not be whitewashed in our schools, that that be taught in our schools. Honestly, questions of race, questions of our own history, our students. I want my children to grow up being exposed to the raw truth about all of this. But then the question is, and and this is where whether it's happening in small doses or large doses. And honestly, I bet it's happening by Republican teachers as much as Democratic teachers. Are we then making the pivot to tell our students what they must think about this information and what views they must have on that and on our country? And I think that's the point where let's leave that to the home, let's leave that to the parents. Schools don't need our need to teach our kids what to think. And so yeah. to the person who penned that editorial, I do believe that opinions are being shared from teacher to students and and teacher and and parents are then having a reaction to it. I think it'd be very simple for—not simple, but I think there's a direct way for Democrats in this environment to say, look, Republicans are lying to you about the extent of this CRT stuff, and and I think it's insulting they're lying to you, the voter— but forget about the Republican for a moment. What I will tell you is I want your kid to be exposed to as much information and as much academia as possible so that they get the best quality education in our public or private schools, and then leave it to you and your kids to decide what to think about the information we provide them as school. Right.
0: And, and, I, and I think there's a parallel track here, which is also um, the, the concern that there's an attack on uh, excellence or, uh, you know, advanced learning. Um, in in the name of equity. And I think that that's been a concern uh, for suburban parents and and let's face it. look in in the in the educationist world, there are people who believe that 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 competition um, is is a bad thing. we We ought to try to uh, use schools to be more of a leveling institution and and that runs up against. Uh, You know, deeply ingrained meritocratic ideas that that you'll have among upper middle class parents who now are crucial kind of now to the Democratic base. Also, to your point, though, see, this is what's been lost. And I think it's intentionally lost, which is the distinction between critical race theory and actually teaching about race, because critical race theory is a specific thing and um, it is deeply illiberal. Um, by uh, you know, casting everything in racial terms, by uh, you know, some of the the really extreme white fragility stuff, I, I think is uh, o- almost feels like it's created in a in a laboratory to uh, annoy and create a backlash. But that's very different from what you're talking about, which is to honestly teach the history. And 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 I and I think you know part of this is this is this demagogic uh, effort by people like Christopher Rufo to say anything that makes you feel uncomfortable is critical race theory. So that if you if, <laughs> right, it, right. so if you and I say you know one one thing we have to do is we need to teach the real history of what happened during Reconstruction. Uh, what was Jim Crow? Um, what was the legacy of, of all of that? If we actually try to teach that that historical. Story, which is true and based on facts and reality, uh, there will be people who will then slap the CRT label on it, um, thoroughly dishonestly, and, and shut yeah. down e- even an honest uh, discussion of these things.
1: Yeah, and and to your point, there is a, a great amount of ignorance in politics today, and unfortunately. We are largely conditioned as a people, and, and this is a good thing. We've been largely conditioned to trust our elected officials, right, to, to focus more on our civic engagements, our families, our schools, our communities, whatever it might be, and just trust the system. But the reality is the system now continues to lie to us and provide us false information. And, yeah. and that's a reflection of where we are. I, I I would add, Charlie, if I could, on on yeah. the Tuesday takeaway, because this is very important to my, my Democratic friends. Look, you split the states 50-50, right? This is not an end-of-the-road situation by any means. What I would say is it's possible to be right on the issues, but also off-message. And I think that's the big takeaway from Tuesday is, look, you're, you're, you're right on issues, at least by polls. I mean, there are ideological differences. You and I probably have some on when it comes to paid family leave and paid pre-K and, and all that stuff. But you can be right on those issues, but still off message for an election. And the reason that's most important, please, if you only hear one thing, is because you're going into very pivotal races. So I think that's the biggest takeaway from Tuesday. And I would say if you only hold on to one thing, please, Democrats. Learn these lessons before you go into critical gubernatorial races in Florida and Pennsylvania and Texas, because take Florida. I've been saying to my Democratic friends for over a year now, you are not going to beat Ron DeSantis on COVID and the economy in Florida. You're playing on his field and it will never work and you're going to lose by three points. Learn the lessons from Tuesday. Meet voters in Florida where they are. Meet Pennsylvania voters where they are. Meet Texas voters where they are. And deliver a message that matters to them right now, even if it's not one of your critical priorities in the Build Back Better plan. You'll have time to talk about
0: that later. So give me your take on this new poll that we have now about uh, Joe Biden. I, I, I think that this USA Today Suffolk poll is probably a little bit of an outlier because it's so relentlessly negative. But it's really bad. Um, yeah. And it, I mean, it It has, you know, Biden's approval ratings sinking to 38 percent, which is within the margin. But uh, nearly half of those surveyed, 46 percent say that Biden has done a worse job as president than they expected, uh, including 16 percent who voted for him. Nearly two thirds of Americans, 64 percent say they don't want Biden to run for a second term. <laughs> that includes 28 percent of Democrats um, really cratering of support among independents. These numbers for Kamala Harris uh, are even worse. Her approval rating is 28%. Uh, poll shows 51% disapprove of the job she's doing. Uh, Americans overwhelmingly support the infrastructure bill Biden is about to sign, but they are split on the more expensive and further reaching Build Back Better Act being debated in Congress. Only one or four say that bill's provisions would help them and their families. Just as a side note, I'm kind of impressed that people are making a distinction between the two bills. Right? <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because you, you kind of really have to be paying attention. You know, right, Biff right. BIF is not the same as BBB, <laughs> there, and I see even professional pundits occasionally confuse them. But they like the bill that he's about to sign. But Democrats have been telling themselves that the Build Back Better thing is everybody likes it. It's very, very popular, and that's just not the case. So give me your sense about, yeah. about where Biden is. And and what and what his prospects for resilience are?
1: Yeah, Charlie, inflation is up. COVID is still here. There is still a tragedy, human tragedy at the border, and the Taliban is back. Uh, and I say that not to just you know deliver a, a blow to President Biden, but that's what we're seeing in the numbers. The the honeymoon of yeah, but he's not Donald Trump. That still lasts for folks like. Like me, I perhaps you as well. I you know, I will I will stick with this team as long as there's a fear of Donald Trump coming back. But the reality is it's a mixed bag in, in Joe Biden's first year. Now he had he did have the stimulus win, he's got the infrastructure win, but it's hard to point to real significant victories for, for Joe Biden in the current moment. And I think we're seeing that in the polls. I you know, this is very anecdotal, but I kind of had some of the same curiosity perhaps you have about the polls that could Biden's numbers really be dropping like that. And for me, I kind of discount almost 40% on each side. That's just never, you know, it's baked yeah. in. And so when I hear, you know, way to go Brandon or whatever the thing is from a yeah. Republican, I'm Let's like, okay. Brandon, yeah. yeah. I'm like, okay, I know the camp you're in. You're going to tell me Biden's always wrong. And when I talk to a, a diehard dim, I, you're all, you're going to tell me everything he's doing great. But anecdotally, I, I am kind of picking up among just those, low to medium information people that you talk to at the grocery store or the gas station, you are picking up a little bit of this theme that the the support for the president's soft. Look, the good news is if you're going to have low numbers, you want them in the first year because you have a lot of time to recalibrate and turn things around. They've got to turn things around for the 22 election. History is is going against them, as is gerrymandering. And then Joe Biden needs, obviously, uh, to up his game some in years three and four.
0: Well, and and there are some positive signs. Uh, you know, on Friday we got those jobs numbers, which would indicate that that by sometime next year, maybe we will have replaced all the jobs that we lost during the the pandemic. That seems that seems reasonable. Inflation, of course, is a real concern, but if in fact the economy is still strong, you still have a Dow over thirty six thousand um, the unemployment rate continues to, to drop and the pandemic increasingly is in the rear view mirror. This will be a different, different environment a year from now than it is right now. And I, and, and and I think one of the lessons we've learned over the last five years is how quickly things change. Well, actually we've learned two lessons, how quickly we forget events, but how, (laughs) how, how basically nothing ever changes. I'm sorry to to contradict myself, but you know, uh, um, in, in in fact our politics does not transform itself things don't move but you know when during the fall of afghanistan i was thinking this was just you know the the you know this the, the, this cataclysmic event for biden i don't know whether it's going to be a factor by next year no. although, although i think it it kind of broke the glass on his honeymoon i mean it, it it sort of ended that sort of sense that everything was going well um that he was in charge and i i think that 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 damage lingers yeah it it kind of shattered a certain image that he had at least among his supporters
1: it it shattered the competence image and i think when it comes to foreign policy it's a very basic question that voters ask themselves are do we feel as safe today as we did yesterday and thus far despite the turmoil in afghanistan and questions over global strategic policy of the u.s that the American people don't feel more threatened today than they felt a month ago. I, I will say, though, I think all of this, and this is what is very tough for, for Joe Biden, all of this comes down to whether or not we get past COVID. And unfortunately, what Biden's wrestling with is half the country that is suspicious that we're even in a pandemic, that this science is even it's real. So
0: weird. And so, weird. so
1: it is hard to then direct policy when you don't have when you don't have the same set of facts among all the american people and that's a look we we've got to have science prevail over this pandemic despite the human behavior that keeps screwing it up
0: yeah and just speaking of feeling safe um democrats should not sleep on the concerns about violent crime in urban areas that is a very real thing there's a real anxiety about it do not cede that issue to the republicans uh, another right. takeaway from last week's elections were that whoever defund the police or anything like it, uh, anything adjacent to it was on the ballot. It went down even in heavily Democratic areas. I mean, and, and so stop yeah. tweeting me about, well, what defund the police really means is blank, blank, blank. If yeah. you're explaining, you're losing. And the problem is, uh, and, and
1: there's no fix to this, both sides do it. But if you take an Abigail Spanberger, for instance, okay, so she doesn't support the defund the police platform or the reallocating of resources, but, but Republicans get to run against her saying she's, she's a member of the party of defund the police, right? I mean, that happens all the time. I had probably the most moderate voting record of Republicans in the house, but when I ran for Congress, uh, democrats got to say yeah but he's a party of and then right. you get to throw in all the marjorie taylor green and matt gates craziness and assign it to jolly and look that's that's one of the well, democrats, democrats have holidays. to do that
0: too okay so okay. can you explain what chris christie is doing it's, it's kind of interesting and i'm not ai am i'm a former christie fan who was thoroughly disgusted uh, by his uh by his shine box uh, performance uh, during the Trump years. Well, he's out uh, you know, urging Donald Trump to move on from the 2020 election, which will not happen. Uh, he gave an interview to CNN saying that Trump must tell the truth if he wants to be a positive force in the midterms, which will never happen. Uh, he's broken with Trump in the past, saying last December that uh, Trump should accept defeat. So what what is his, what is he thinking is is the path here? I mean, I, 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 I you know, part of me wants to think, you know, like, s- screw you, Chris Christie, for your empowering of Trump. On the other hand, I, are you going to be the voice for Republicans who are going to say, look, look at New Jersey, look at, at, at Virginia, and you need to move – Republicans can win if you move on from Trump. Is he going to yeah. be that guy? You know, Maybe. I is there a yeah, path there? To, you know? I mean, to your point, anytime a
1: Republican leader is engaging in truth telling, let's be supportive of it. Uh, who knows if if Chris Christie sees a political future for him or not. But what he said is right. And it goes back to the takeaways we were talking about from Virginia and New Jersey. If you can leave Donald Trump, the person out of it, and Donald Trump, the, the crazy misinformation conspiracy theorist about all things elections, Republicans perform better. I mean, recall that what we saw in the 2020 election was a significant statistical undervote from president to down ballot Republicans. And and the right twisted that and said, oh, that means people stole votes from Donald Trump to make sure he lost. No, that's not what happened. A lot of Republicans just didn't vote for Donald Trump because they don't like the guy and they think he's a jerk. So if you remove him from the election cycle. Republicans can do very well, and I think that's what Chris Christie was trying to suggest. But it was also interesting. The response,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> Charlie, was not overwhelmingly supportive of Chris Christie in that moment. Golf clap, yeah. <laughs> no, and this is the Republican Jewish um, you know, coalition, yeah. and apparently they didn't invite Liz Cheney to speak, which tells you something about it. Okay, so this morning we're getting a little tidbit from Jonathan Carl. Uh, Jonathan Carl's new book, Jonathan Carl, from ABC News, and yeah. he's reporting that. On his final day as president, on January 20th, Donald Trump was sulking and raging and was telling the chairwoman of the republican national committee that he was he was out he was leaving the republican party he was going to create his own party and he didn't didn't care if it would destroy the republican party and apparently he only backed down when republicans threatened to take actions that would cost trump millions of dollars (laughs) so (laughs) my 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 sort of no knee jerk take there is they should have just let him go you know this was one of the many many off ramps you know and at a certain point uh Maybe what they should have said is, "Hey, you know, thanks for the the input, um, Mr. Former Defeated One Term President. Um, don't let the door hit you on the way out." Uh, yeah, but, thanks but, for but the but four not. years, right? Yeah, yeah thanks um, for the memories. Yeah. You know
1: what, Jonathan Carl paints a picture of is interesting. One of the former press secretaries or somebody who left and maybe wrote a book about how terrible all things were, and they just stayed there to save the republic, kind of thing. Um, but a common theme was the president's anger and how he became so irrational in these fits of rage. And it's interesting because I don't think that would surprise anybody, but it also should be a lesson of how terrifying another Trump administration could be, that this is somebody that would act incredibly irrationally if he had the levers of power, as we are learning through these books from Carl, Jonathan, Carl, and others uh, regarding the last days of the Trump
0: administration. See this is the point that that I'm going to keep pounding away on is that if if you think the first Trump presidency was bad you you ain't seen nothing That's yet right. that that they a second Trump presidency where he now knows what he can do when he now will be able to surround himself with people who will do what other people you know even remember when we thought that bill barr was the the ultimate sycophant um but bill Barr reached a point where he said i'm not going to do this uh yeah i'm I'm not going to go that far well he's not going to make this mistake again he's going to have a, a republican attorney general who will be willing to go where others were not so all of the people who were the guardrails um, May be gone in 2024, and this will be a presidency. Uh, you know, the second you know, Trump 2.0 would be really fixated on revenge and very, very dangerous. So, for people who yell at us and say, "Why are you guys criticizing Joe Biden for this or for that?" It's because look, um, his failure opens the door to that, that's and correct. right now that's job number one. You know, Democrats yeah. have just one job: don't 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 screw this up. Don't don't open that door because he can come right back in. It's not. I don't know about you. But I have a hard time imagining Trump not winning the Republican nomination. And if the Democrats do not have some significant course correction, I could imagine him winning that election, even with I, everything I with that you him. and I know about him. Fully agree with
1: you. And I, I, a Democratic friend of mine who nearly won a seat in Congress this last election penned an op-ed that said, please, Democrats, realize realize the fallout if you don't succeed. Realize what comes next. And it's exactly yep. what you described Charlie and and you hit on something very important, which is think of the people he will put around him in a cabinet. And in many ways, look, if there were good guys on the scene, they were gone in the first year, right? The attrition and the firings and the leavings, whatever. And then look at the people he put around him were more and more sycophants and less and less qualified. And then when they were gone, that team in November, December, and January he had around him, crazy people. Mm-hmm. So let's say this guy gets elected. Now, we, you were talking about Josh Hawley put him in charge of Department of Education on his manliness platform, put Matt Gates in charge of DOJ to fix every criminal activity there is that Republicans are otherwise culpable for. I mean, Donald Trump has no interest in governing. It is, as you said, revenge and extracting from the government what will benefit him personally, financially and his family.
0: Yeah, just, just move the Claremont Institute right into the White House. That's right. All <laughs> of those people out there that you're all rolling your eyes at. And I know what's what some Republicans are thinking in the back of their mind, well, now Charlie and 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 David, if he were to appoint a completely unqualified attorney general or somebody like that, there's no way that the Senate would confirm that person. <laughs> yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) Really? I mean, have you met Mitch McConnell? Are you watching what's going on? If Mitch McConnell is the majority leader because he got there by the the election of people like Herschel Walker, you know, and and he's sitting next to Senator Josh Mandel. You think they're going to say no to a, a Trumpified presidency? You think that they are going to be the bulwark. I mean, how many times do we have to go through this? That's exactly right. Look, people say, why does Why does Kevin
1: McCarthy put up with Marjorie Taylor Greene? Well, because he needs her vote for speaker. Yeah. And to your point, Mitch
0: McConnell will do whatever he needs to retain a hold on power. That's just the way politics works. Okay. So w- one last question about, since you mentioned Kevin McCarthy. So as part of this rage against bipartisanship, there are the people uh, including at National Review we're saying well Kevin McCarthy needs to be ousted as leader should never be speaker because he failed to stop 13 republicans from voting for infrastructure it, tell me a little bit about the dynamic what they're getting at here i mean what leverage did what could kevin mccarthy have done to stop those representatives from voting for the infrastructure plan did did he have yeah. that ability to do that Well, sort of. He did.
1: Um, As a baseline, I would tell you, for listeners, it is important to know Kevin McCarthy is as cold and calculating a political leader as Mitch McConnell is. Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell's developed this reputation over decades, but I promise you, this is all about numbers for Kevin McCarthy. There is no political morality in play. There is no real uh, introspection of himself or the caucus. This is about how does he get to 218 and get the votes to be speaker because he failed to the last time he tried. He is a cold, calculating Republican leader of the House. Now, why could he not hold those 13 and what could he have done? He he could have removed them from their committees but the public scrutiny around that would be remarkable. What he likely already is making moves to do is what he did to Liz Cheney, which is to say to the K Street community and the consultant community, if you work with any of these 13, you're not working with us. If you if you think access to these 13 is important, well, you don't have access to Kevin McCarthy and our leadership team. Then. Wow, wow. And he That's- will starve those 13 members from political support. I was one of those members, you know, I voted against Kevin McCarthy. I was one of the mi- reasons he didn't become speaker. I also went on 60 Minutes and talked about how corrupt campaign finance is. So when I ran for my last reelection, the NRCC and McCarthy wanted nothing to do with me, but we had a shot to win this. I had been redistricted to, mm-hmm. a, a. it was a generic D plus three or four, but an Obama plus 11 in mm. presidential years. So I was left for dead, right? No way Jolly yeah. can win. No way he can win. But I decided to give it a run. And and with about a week to go, we said, you know, if we had another million dollars, we could pull this off. We knew we were within two to three points. And McCarthy's team delivered the message. We're only going to save Jolly if the house is on the line. Otherwise, let him go.
0: Okay, and wow. And that's, that's old, what he's doing old, about those you know. 13. Yeah, cold, cold. David Jolly, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. It's always fun. Good to be with you. Thanks. Particularly on days when we have to deal with the crazy building. Thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.